Welcome to Our Son Pete, a monthly Patreon-exclusive WMQ&A bonus podcast where I, Dan Grote, read through every appearance of British mutant spymaster Peter Winston Wisdom. This month, we're covering Pride Wisdom number two, a.k.a. Meet the Wisdoms. And to help me, I'm joined by the specialist of guests. He's the co-host of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, the co-host of WMQ&A, and my best friend. Please welcome Matt Lazowitz. Matt, how excited are you to talk about this book? Oh, I am excited to talk about this Frankenstein's monster of crazy Warren Ellis ideas. That is that is an excellent way to describe it. But before we dive into this comic from 1996, let's talk newer business. Newer Pete business, that is. What did, what did you think about Pete's role in uh, Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain, which just wrapped? I thought... It was a logical role for the character. I think it was so underutilized, and not just Pete, but Strike in general, that it kind of felt like, well, I set this up back in Excalibur, so I might as well pay it off, but... I would really much rather just have fun, sexy adventures with Betsy and Rachel, which there's nothing wrong with. I love the fun, sexy adventures of Betsy and Rachel. Betsy and Rachel deserve their fun, sexy adventures. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it it just felt sort of like an appendix to the story. It's like, okay, I want to wrap this up because people, I don't want to be yet another ex creator who leaves behind (laughs) a dangling plot thread. And I am somewhat paying off the stuff that Strike is doing, but they don't have a ton of purpose, as sadly, neither did Faisal Hussein, who got a little more play than them. But don't don't tease me with my my, MI13 babies and then just have them there for for a couple pages. I want to be some more MI13 babies. And not just like X babies versions of the MI13 characters. Although I would be there for that too. Whittle <laughs> <laughs> uh, Blade. Uh, <laughs> I would watch that show. I tell you what I would read, because you're absolutely right. They they were those characters were underutilized in this series. So it was nice to see them. Nice to have them. You know, I'm just saying, if, if you wanted to pay Paul Cornell to write a five-issue Pete Wisdom Agent of Strike series. I can think of at least least two people that would read it. That's ten whole dollars, Marvel. (laughs) Or maybe eight. I don't know what you're going to charge for them on the cover price. But uh... I I liked the the end. I mean, that as, you know, spy mastery as Pete has become... He still is something of a, a hothead. And so it's like, oh, you guys tortured me to death? Yes, I know I should sneak around, but fuck you guys. I'm going to punch you in the face. That that was awesome. That yes. that was that was uh, that was the payoff of like four years of story right there. I, I wish he had gotten to actively punch Ruben Brousseau in the face because that guy, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Ah. <sighs> But all right, back to the matter at hand. So 
Previously, in Pride and Wisdom number one, Pete and Kitty come to London to help Pete's friend Jardine find his daughter again as a mutant serial killer runs around fossilizing people and writing mysterious symbols into their bones. Also, we met Bob. But Aliens with, quake at his tread. They do. They do. <laughs> with that out of the way, let's talk about Pride and Wisdom number two, Mystery Walk, cover date October 1996, written by Warren Ellis, drawn by Terry Dotson and Aaron Lepresti, inked by Tom Simmons, Rachel Pinnock, Aaron Lepresti, and Jason Martin, colored by Ariane Lenschwick with Enhancement by Malibu, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and edited by Matt Idelson with special thanks to Suzanne Gaffney and a cover by Dotson and Pinnock. Now, Matt, if I may steal one of your bits for a moment here. Problematic creator watch, Aaron Lepresti is affiliated with that wretched hive of scum and villainy known as Comicsgate, and also the whole Warren Ellis sex pest thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like, Lepresti, I was like, I guess you really can't tell by somebody's body of work. I mean, this dude did Wonder Woman for ages with Gail Simone. It's like, boy, you know, you'd you, you think, judging by the company, he'd kept to a point that this guy's not going to turn out to be a monster, but apparently not. I, I, I'm surprised when I was looking at these credits that the, the inkers are all credited in the on the title page of the book just by last name. Yeah, no, I had to Google their 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 full names. I guess because there's four of them, there just wasn't enough room. Although you could have tightened the kerning on the uh, uh, I don't know what the hell you call that the mailing information box and bought yourself another line or two. Indicia. Sure. Yeah, that thing. That, that is, I believe, the indicia. Okay. But, yeah. Yeah. I. I. Oh, how is it that everything Excalibur in this era or Excalibur related has to have an artistic team of thirty? It's listen. Even they're X books, but they're not the high priority X books. Hmm. Yeah, it it just you know it it was what it was. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know this is this is a fun cover. I like this cover. You know, Pete's firing off his hot knives. Kitty's phasing through him with her fists a popping. You've got words like death, danger, mystery, and and then also Pete's father and sister are are silhouetted. So you're like, oh, who are these mysterious characters? And it's just they're kooks. They're kooks. <laughs> they are the the. The, the Wisdoms and the Adams family, they're, they're creepy and they're kooky. They are all together, Oogie, it's true. Uh, so, short version, Pete and Kitty's investigation of a mutant serial killer in London heats up as we're introduced to, again, two key members uh, of Pete's family. Matt, where do you want to start? I I wound up going down a few rabbit holes when reading this book because it's funny when i'm only reading one comic for a podcast I, I i'm focusing and researching a lot more than you know any one particular bit of bat chat where i've got so much to look at because mm -hmm. I, I looked first into the title because i was like okay this is ellis goes into everything and the only thing i could find is that mystery walk is the title of a horror novel from 1983 by Robert R. McCammon, who wrote one of my favorite 
of a favorite book of a particular genre, which I I love, which is uh, Nazis versus monsters, <laughs> where you're, you're you're rooting for the monsters. He wrote a book called The Wolf's Hour, where a British secret agent who also happens to be a werewolf fights Nazis. So thumbs up on that. Yep. Uh, I could not <laughs> judge judging by reading the description of the book. I don't think it has anything really in common with this issue, other than I think Ellis liked the title. Uh, let's let's start with let's meet the wisdoms, shall we? Let's meet the wisdoms, and we do that on page one. So we open on a splash page of a cranky old man we've never seen before in a black and yellow striped oversized sleep shirt that probably used to be black and white with matching slippers, all of it stained and patched in places. And he demands, what do you want? Are you the bath woman? You're late. I've been waiting since 1968. Do you fancy me? This is Harold Wisdom, Pete's dad, and I love him. And it's like, okay, the bath woman, is this the woman who's supposed to bathe him? Is this a woman from the British locale of Bath? I think there's any number of possibilities. All of them are disquieting. Well, you know, a good writer leads things up to multiple interpretations. <laughs> and boy, howdy, does Warren Ellis leave a lot of things to various interpretations in this book. Well, I could tell you one thing for certain. This man is not wearing underwear. No, no, he is not. Boy, you can you can tell why Pete doesn't want to to spend much time with his family, and we we get more of a sense of it as we get along into the story and see exactly what Harold says to Pete. But right out of the gate, it's like, oh, this guy's. Not 100% all there. And and yet, he apparently was, you know, a, a, a serial killer profile from before they had the term serial killers. So he's probably also a brilliant man. But he's also he, a wisdom. Right. He is very clearly what Fox Mulder will be 30 years down the line. Because that is that's Mulder's backstory. Mulder was a criminal profiler who got into the X Files and fell down a rabbit hole. So I feel like this is Ellis's uh, X Files fandom coming out again. Again, that's right. This is this is a pride and wisdom story, which means it's also an X Files story because it is 1996. We're on season I don't know what four or five of the X Files at this point. Four, probably. Okay, right at this we're point. still in peak X Files. Oh yeah, is this the is point. the the height of the show's popularity at this point. Yeah, uh, before it was ruined by the movie. Uh, and I mean, <laughs> when you see his house, what is written right above the the door? Trust no Trust one. No one. Uh, yeah, you know he has excellent uh, house graffiti, including, and I'll read some of these for the listeners. JFK died for you. Uh, Nazi wankers. Uh, that that one's a little bit more obscured, and also there's an apostrophe between the R and the S, which I I feel like he know, understands basic grammar, but I think maybe that's what got it past Marvel basic standards and practices. Yep, uh, water is poison is also obscured. Yes, uh, I I figure he believes fluoride is a mind control drug. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh gentlemen no fighting this is the war room uh <laughs> and then he has this giant crumbling statue of an angel that's missing a leg and a hand and the bow of its bow and arrow an angel uh, or cupid i i would think that the bow and arrow tends to mean cupid true Cupid tends to be cherubic and the cherubim are a class yeah, of angels, right? That is true. I believe they are. It could be either one or both. Maybe Cupid was an angel who infiltrated the Greek pantheon. It's a conspiracy. There, there you go. There. We, we've we've, we've justified a it. a lot of stuff involving angels the past few days. Tune into Bat Chat probably shortly after this episode drops to hear what will be a fascinating episode about Azrael for two thirds of it. And one third of it, just me and Will screaming about curse of the white knight. Oh, I look forward to that biblically accurate Azrael coverage. <laughs> uh, Harold also has my favorite line in this comic <laughs> when he says in, by way of making small talk with Kitty, America is run by Freemasons who worship the A-bomb and kill JFK according to ancient pagan ritual. Matt, Harold Wisdom pitched Department of Truth 25 years before it was published. He did. And I like that in his previous word balloon, he's, it has American written with a K. And he is the kind of person who can say it in a way that you hear the K. American Freemason pagan witch girlfriend. Exactly. Which, of course, is funny as we're pretty soon going to meet Romani. Romani? I go with Romani. Romani. Romani, who, uh, speaking of pagan witch girlfriends, or pagan witch at least, but we'll get there. Yeah. It's just amazing that in that string of words with, with, with which he just decided to describe Kitty... At least none of it was anti-Semitic, I don't think. No, 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 nothing there is anti-Semitic. I don't, you know, I don't think Harold is that kind of conspiracy nut. Harold is the kind of conspiracy nut we had in the 90s. The fun where, ones. <laughs> right, exactly. The, the lone gunman. He, he's, he's got that, that vibe where it's really about the government screwing you over without having any agenda other than the government is evil and trying to keep secrets. They're, they're not backed by Israel or, uh, oh God, how am I forgetting the name? It jumped George out Soros? Yes, thank you. The name just jumped right out of my head as I was about to say it. He's not that kind of conspiracy nut. He's the, you know, Bigfoot died for our sins kind of conspiracy nut. Uh, once again, QAnon, you ruined everything. I really, really did. But uh, but Kitty takes Harold in stride. You know, it, it, she, it, her first line is, is, Hi, I'm Kitty Pride. Your son never introduces me. He's terrible at these things. What a nice house. <laughs> and then we see the house and it's like, oh, yeah. I At, at this point in their relationship, the, the dynamic between Kitty and Pete is well established. He's a horrible git with a sense of duty and a taste for cigarettes and booze. And she's a plucky young gal who'll kick your ass if you get fresh. When they fight, not each other, but, you know, the people around them, 
Pete gets a couple hits in, but but Kitty is the trained hand-to-hand combatant. When they banter, Pete is moody and impolite, and Kitty is perky and charming. It's 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 very Ellis. Yes. You know, and and I feel like like their duality is is not limited to Pete and Kitty among the Excalibur couples of this era. You know, if you look at the book during this time, Megan has mastered her powers and even developed some new ones and learned to read. And Brian is bemoting still being a superhero. Kurt is trying all these different versions of being a leader and and making cool speeches as the Hellfire Club, uh, London Hellfire Club story progresses. And Amanda is ultimately the one who saves the day in that story. It's it's Claremontian to a point because I think the difference is Claremont let his women be messy, as messy as the men. They weren't duty-bound to be perfect and to prop up the male members of the cast. And I, f- I feel like reading this and then also reading Excalibur 102 back-to-back uh, especially in the Pete and Kitty fight scenes there in both issues, I'm starting to see this a lot more on reread. Hmm. Yeah. You know, in fact, let's talk, let's talk about the fight scene because this is the second fight that they got in, second fight scene that they've had in the same month in 1996, maybe even the same week, I'm not sure. Uh, but... If you in Excalibur 102, they fight some guys outside the chalk and cheese, and it's literally the same thing. Like Pete gets one guy, gets a couple hits in, makes a smart ass comment. Katie takes out like five, five guys. Right. And here it's Pete is supposed to be a spy. Yes. But Pete doesn't pick up the telltale clue of the bomb. It's Kitty. Correct. And this makes me more sure that Cornell, Paul Cornell developed Pete into the full on spy master that he is, which was not what Ellis intended, at least not until maybe X Force. And even there, Pete was not the most competent spy master as he, you know, got himself shot right out of the gate. Here it's it's Kitty who's the observant one, and Pete is just there to be snarky and have contacts. It starts to make you wonder how good a spy Pete was when he was in Black Air. But the, like we know he's killed people, we know he's done spy shit. It, it makes you think that Black Air probably wasn't a great spy organization. They were really a wetworks op. Yes. Yeah, that, and we know they, they were a bad spy organization because they branded their shit. Yes, they branded their men. I mean, freaking Scratch has the black air symbol on him, on his head. Their helicopters had, their black helicopters, hello, conspiracy theories in the 90s, had giant white black air sun logos on them. Yes, they were Cicluna and Threadgold. A plus for marketing classes, F minus for covert ops. 
Yes, absolutely. And we're here in this fight scene, and this once again shows Ellis playing fast and loose with continuity. Yes, go on. Because inhibitor guns, which, wait, we've seen one inhibitor gun, and when you get hit with it, you're done. And here, they're like the ubiquitous mutant control collars that they sell at every newsstand in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> like, how did they... Like, And here's the other... Okay, yeah. So, they when they go back to their hotel, you know, they... they Kitty notices the bomb because the door clicked one too many times or whatever. She diffuses it the way she always diffuses those things. No problems there. The guys show up with guns. What, what gives away that they're inhibitor guns? They don't announce, boy, these are inhibitor guns, mate. You're about to lose your, your bleeding powers. Neither of them gets hit and loses their powers. Kitty just yells inhibitor guns and goes intangible. I mean, are they meant to, to they don't they don't remind me of the Ramita Jr. designed inhibitor gun that you know Storm was shot with. I guess we can just sort of assume it's the exact same design. But again, there was one of them and it permanently took away your powers. These are not that. They do look like the um the NES Duck Hunt gun. And that or, came out in 1985, which was about the same time Forge's inhibitor gun came out. Yeah. Touch of Star Trek phaser as well. Original recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't entirely know. And by this point, we're into the Lepresti pages. So things aren't looking exactly like the rest of the book. Cause I feel like he does like this book bounces between the artists. Yeah. To the point where I couldn't, I honestly couldn't tell because early dots and, you know, I don't claim to be an expert. Yeah. No, I mean, I can just, there's some stuff with some of the faces there where it's like, okay, that's, that's not, Dodson, the 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 mo. There's a different sense of motion, a different sense of face, uh, 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 faces there, and then it's that way throughout that entire fight, and then we get one or two pages that I think might be Dodson, and then we're back to Lepresti when they're at F six six for sure, and I think it wraps up with Dodson again, but again, their styles. I'm surprised there's four inkers because it feels like the kind of book where you've got one inker making both pencilers similar but instead it's maybe so many inkers and so many pencilers that it all is just confusing it's it's surprisingly not a mess no it actually doesn't look bad this isn't the previous episode I was on, Excalibur 91, where it's just all over the friggin' place. Yes, and then Mike Rowingo is is also there to make things look good for just like a hot couple hot seconds. Yeah. No, I mean, these are both competent pencilers, and most of those inkers are pretty, are solid inkers as well, the ones I'm familiar with. So... I think it's just, 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. But back back to the inhibitor guns. Why another thing is like, why did the guns need to be inhibitor guns? Because no one loses their powers, which therefore there being inhibitor guns and not regular guns, it's not necessary to the story. I think that feeds into the identity of the mystery woman who appears at the end of the issue who never appears again after next issue and who didn't need to be there at all for this story. You are, of course, referring to the woman who I refer to as Saffron from Republica. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Because spoilers for next issue, she claims to be that she could have been the Charles Xavier of England if she so chose. So I think that that was leading into something This is another story that, okay, Storm, Ellis' miniseries with Dodson, four issues. Mm -hmm. Starjammers, Ellis' miniseries with Pacheco, Mm -hmm. four issues. This one, three. Yes. Too short. Part of me thinks that he had written this as a four-issue they're like, I know, Warren, we're only giving you three. So he's just chopped things out to try to make it flow, which is why, especially next issue, feels incredibly rushed. I haven't read I haven't read ahead. Uh, but I, I mean, I wonder, I wonder if part of it. So each of these issues comes out about the same time as each of Ellis's last three issues of Excalibur, and then he's gone. A part of me wonders if they were timed together for that reason. Like he had already, you know, whether it was it was Marvel saying, all right, you're out at 103. And he's like, all right, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to spend any longer here than I have to. You know, I I think I, I said last time he's not far off from jumping on Stormwatch. Mm. You know, and we're about a year out from Transmetropolitan number one. So it's possible that he's just got all these other babies in his head that he's already moved on to. But I mean, honestly, there's a fourth issue here that actively interrogates their relationship and makes us understand a year into it in publishing time why why they still make sense together. I mean, he's already dropped hints in Excalibur that, like, he's supposed to tell Kitty he loves her, which he does in Excalibur 103, fine. But, like, don't you want to play with that tension here? Don't you want to give me a little moonlighting here? And it also further develops the serial killer and the mystery woman, both of which get wrapped up. The mystery woman is there for a few pages and then just gone. And it serves zero purpose in this story and just takes up page space. So it feels to me like that is something he had other ideas for. This is more so than Excalibur, the beginning of an Ellis that we will see for years hereafter. The Ellis who has a million weird ideas that he read about on the internet 
and drops them into comics, peppers them in, and doesn't develop them. It's an we see it in Stormwatch during his uh, the second what is the second trade when they originally traded it that are one offs with Jenny Sparks with Jack Hawksmore with all the new characters giving them backgrounds and having weird little side mysteries. It is what the book fell entirely was. It is something we see in Hellblazer when he did all these one-offs that had various ideas that were there for just this one little issue. It's Ellis was the, the bumblebee of crazy internet ideas. <laughs> and every now and then you get the Jenny Sparks issue of Stormwatch. You get Shoot from Hellblazer. But more often than not, you get all those issues of Fell or the Jack Hawksmore issue of Hellblazer where, not Hellblazer, the Jack Hawksmore issue of Stormwatch where he's chasing JFK's illegitimate son with Marilyn Monroe. Born Ellis, everybody. And it is a shame, too, because I do like a lot of the characters that he introduces here. But because Ellis is gone, so are they. We'll get there when we talk about Romani, because there is some stuff with that character that I want to talk about. Okay. She right. doesn't well, go away. That's true. She does not, she does not go away. Let, let, let's get to Romani. So they have their fight with uh, these, these indescript goons. They use their pew-pew guns that are supposed to be inhibitors to kill themselves, which does that mean that they're mutants or? You'll get to issue three and that will sort of make sense. Okay. Right now it doesn't. Uh, Pete yells Gordon Bennett, which, uh, you know, again, we're here to teach British slang as Americans. And that, that is an expression meant to convey surprise. Um, I'm sorry. We got to make it. We got to make a stop before we get to Romani. Forgot about this, Matt. We have to talk about the claws. Oh my yes, yes. I was gonna say. I, I thought we might have to circle back to get to the the what the hell was Lepresti? Because that is Lepresti. Okay, doing with Pete's claws there. All right. As we as we have well established by now. Every artist draws Pete's hot knives differently. Uh, here we get full-on orange Wolverine claws, bent, curved, jutting out of his knuckles, but without like the little metal glove housings. Uh, it's cool. It's threatening. It is not at all how they should look. No. It, not not to mention. In, in the panel prior to the popping of the hot claws, the, the hot knives make cracks in a wall, like, like somebody banged a nail one too many times and the wall started to break apart, as opposed to scorch marks, because hot knives are a heat-based power, like, like they're actual knives and not pure heat in the shape of knives. And honestly, like... Matt, as I was writing all that out, I just had to stop. Like, I don't even think I finished that sentence originally because it occurred to me after shit like this, 
and Excalibur 100, where Pete uses his hot knives to slow his descent to the ground from the uh, Midnight Runner, that maybe maybe it's me. Maybe I don't understand how Pete's hot knives work. No, I don't. I think the issue is nobody understood how these things worked. And like, yeah, I mean, like, I wonder, I mean, A, possibly they're so hot that they might not leave scorch marks because they just are passing through things, but they wouldn't make a crack. They would just make a perfect pinprick hole. And I do want to, at some point, circle back to something from the Harold scene because there's okay. one bit left that I want to I want to discuss there. But I think we probably should be because it's the stuff that feeds into the the scene between Pete and Kitty after. So I don't know if we want to get talk about Romani and then talk about the relationship stuff. Let's do that. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Pete and Kitty get all horned up from violencing. And and somehow make a love seat fall over, uh, I guess because it wasn't close enough to the wall. I don't know. Neither of them should be heavy enough to knock over a love seat. But then again, Pete shouldn't be able to make his hot knives do that. Anyway, they are interrupted by the arrival of another wisdom. Uh, this is Pete's sister, Romani, uh, who, like Bob, has those round John Lennon glasses and he's also wearing a purple jacket with fringe so that much fringe. makes her look like Maud Grimace. And, you know, I, we don't get a good look at them, but I would give you a large sum of money if you would disagree that she's not wearing bell bottoms. Nah, that's a straight leg. You think? Yeah. There's, there's, um, that's not showing up at the blur. Uh, what screen? Now nah, those are straight legs. They're not flared at the bottom. Uh, I would have thought that would actually were... make more sense, though. Well, exactly. I just presumed they were bell bottoms because of the jacket and everything. She just seems like she would wear bell bottoms with the glasses and the jacket. It it has that late sixties, early seventies sort of vibe to it. That was very popular in the nineties. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so while Pete's dad is the serial killer alien guy, Romani is some sort of low-level mystic. Yes. And and also a a pick, uh, not a a lockpick, apparently. Yeah, some sort of burglar, has some burglary in her past. And she is the... This is Ben Robb's favorite scene of anything Warren Ellis ever did. Okay. Interesting. Because Ben Robb pulls a bunch of stuff from this. Okay. Uh, he, this is where Romani has a line about, like her a lot, much better than that contract killer woman from Peckham, who's that, a character yes. that Rob introduces, sorry, St. Hubbins. Mm-hmm. But also, he, A, wrote a Union Jack miniseries with art by John Cassaday, where it turns out Romani Wisdom dated Union Jack. She is the major supporting character in that miniseries. Wait a minute. Hold on. I thought Union Jack was gay. 
the original Union Jack, the one from the, the Invaders era Union Jack. This is modern Union Jack. This is like working class Union Jack, whose whole thing is the Union Jacks were always British nobility and he's the, you know, street guy. He's the one who dated Spitfire for a while and then she dumped him for Blade. Okay. All right. There's a few Union Jacks, so I got yes, confused. It's it's a legacy. What what are, what are the dated Roger Aubrey though, right? It was like a thing in Captain America, like yeah. the most recent uh Lansing and Kelly run. Right. Yeah, no, he was he was the, the golden age Union Jack, the okay. one from from that period who Baron Blood is his brother. Got it. The vampire okay. guy. But no, the which that might be a book that we, you know, I would come back on and we could cover that whole miniseries because it's a three issue early John Cassidy miniseries with Romani Wisdom as the major supporting character. I, I may I may have to consider that. Uh, I would happily come on because there she's still this Romani. Mm-hmm. Also, this is a thing I absolutely remember reading. Uh-huh. I am 99% sure it was in an issue of Marvel Visions. Marvel Visions was the magazine that Marvel put out after Marvel Age that was sort of the, you know, uh, you know, hype book. It also uh-huh. came out when Marvel's solicitations weren't in previews because of distributor things. So it also had their solicitations. Okay. But it had interviews and things. And I remember distinctly an interview where Rob said that he planned on Kitty to go back to college and Romani would be one of her professors. Interesting. And then Claremont stole his idea and then didn't do it. Yeah. I, I looked it up and... I could not find issues of Marvel Visions online to read, but their Marvel Visions 27, which was published March of 98. So earlier in the year when Excalibur would end. Yes. So, and it has uh, article article on Excalibur with comments from Ben Robb. So I have to imagine that that is where I read that particular interview. And it strikes me as similar to what happened with X-Factor, where Rob didn't know too far in advance that 125 was going to be the end of the series. Mm-hmm. So he's like, that was going to be 125. It was going to be a big issue. It was going to have the wedding and all that. But he had plans further down. It was like, yeah, about that. Go and write 2099 World of Tomorrow, the worst X-Men story ever told. Well, at least he got to a factor of 25 as opposed to X-Factor, which ended at 149 while promising a bold new direction in issue 150. That just burns. That just, that must have hurt. (laughs) But yeah, Ben Robb clearly liked Romani wisdom. And this version, not the version that Ellis brings back in X-Force, who is not this character at all, which is just weird. 
because he probably only half remembered who who is it who is it <laughs> exactly because because that's the thing even if it's not Ellis imagine some enterprising writer looking at these characters looking at Harold and Romani and Bob <laughs> and the rest of F66 was also there <laughs> Constance Johansson <laughs> oh John Constantine is a woman I love it all my friends love are it. dead <laughs> hate her myself <laughs> I can't uh, stand her myself yeah that's it <laughs> just like a damage control style series where you follow around Chief Inspector Eccles as this harried uh, minister of odd deaths or whatever yes again I would read this book <laughs> but you wanted to, to bring up another Harold point before we move forward I just I don't I don't know how much you discussed because I don't think I've heard the episode for uh, issue ninety. How much you discussed the Hungerford massacre and uh, as a real life event? Yeah. Yes, uh, we did yeah. talk. I we by we I mean I because I did not have a guest for that episode. Uh, did talk about the Hungerford massacre as the real world event in which Pete Wisdom's mother uh, was killed. Uh, which, of course, is one of those wonderful bits where actual history nails characters to the timeline, which, of course, makes their continuity uh, wonky later. And it's only OK when World War II characters do it and no one else. But even more than that, here Ellis does his best to not specifically mention Hungerford. He just talks about it in more generic terms, yes. possibly for reasons like that. And partially because it's like having a superhero whose origin is tied to Columbine. It is in fairly bad taste. Not to mention, I hate to say this, but the great thing about the sliding timescale means, just like Tony Stark has now built his suit of armor in Afghanistan instead of Vietnam, or maybe the fictional nation of Sien Kong, not sure where we stand on that, uh, Pete's mom could have now been killed in any number of spree killings since then. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. World is on fire. World is on fire. Literally, all of Canada just, just smoking us out. Yep. But we go from that where into this scene with Pete and Kitty. And again, I feel like if this was a four issue miniseries, we could have had a little more breathing space for Pete having this emotional breakdown about his mother. And we could have dealt with it versus here where it's like, hey, we got, you know, Kitty makes a quip. Pete has an emotional breakdown. There we go. Kitty props up her wounded wolf yet again. Yeah. And I just, I I feel like, th as you said, there is a version of this series where they really inspect why these two are still together. And you see a little bit about it. And I like the, the ending, the final line about, tell me, just tell me about her. But, and again, that pays off in the next issue. But, it, it doesn't feel like we got enough of that. And 
then we get the two the one page with uh Amanda Jardine and the killer and it's it feels like Ellis sort of wanted to make this a mystery but then doesn't give us anywhere near enough clues to make it a mystery it's there's no there's no payoff within the text of this issue for this scene you know you could have just made do with one more page farther down in the book that raises the stakes for this interaction we don't know that this woman is amanda jardine we don't know that the person in shadow is john gideon so we don't know why we should care about it yeah, it just is not. <laughs> and then the woman at the end. Now, first of all, she's got her hair is different from when we saw her in the first issue. In the first issue, she had black hair with a red stripe, which is why I was making the saffron from a public comment. <laughs> or Victoria Hand. Yes. Also that. Good point. Good callback. Um, <laughs> but now we don't know this person. She hasn't introduced herself. And she's, by the way, in the next issue, she's back to black hair with a red stripe. So it is just this one page that gets it wrong. Great, great job, Ariane Lynchwick with Enhanced by Malibu. And if she is supposed to be the British Charles Xavier or someone who believes that they could have been the British Charles Xavier, it's the version that woke up in the Morlock tunnels in the bondage gear. Again, when you read the beginning of next issue, when she has this whole weird ass speech, it some of it is explained there, but it's it's yeah. She looks like she's supposed to be saying, "Don't anybody fucking move, or I'll murder every motherfucking last one again." <laughs> be cool, honey, buddy. Be cool. <laughs> oh, now I want to listen to Scooby's next by the Fun Loving Criminals. Anyway, I'm old. Uh, <laughs> you and me both, brother. Uh, and and then we we get what is the most Ellis scene of this. Well, not then because that's the last page. But we go back and the scene at the mystery school, the offices of F six six, with Romani going on about the manstone and Enochian, the language of angels in heaven. That is, again, Warren Ellis just like, let me Google something weird. Or I guess back then, Yahoo or Let me CompuServe something weird. Right. (laughs) Uh, My my phone for some reason. Oh, I said Google. That's why. Why is my phone doing something? Oh, right. I said Google. Um, Uh, Yes, master. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, this is so very much... Ellis and I mean maybe I'm being unfair in assuming this was four issues because I mean Dream Nails was three yes and so this is the spiritual sequel to Dream Nails correct so maybe it was always intended to be three but it just feels like there's so much left on the table in this story especially once you've read the third issue and it all just sort of wraps up far too quickly. So yeah, she's she's going through her explanation of what a manstone is. And and this this scene feels very much like you said, it just 
the the short attention span Warren Ellis is yes. showing here because Romani makes an extra etch in the symbols on 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 the skeleton and all of a sudden it it's it animates it rises the orb right juts from its chest it speaks it asks what do you wish to find nobody asks it a fucking question well, except They're Bob, tr- who asks, why can't I get a girlfriend? And good job, Bob. This is why we love you. You're perfect. Don't change. Maybe wash that Oasis t-shirt. Otherwise, keep on keeping on. This is a murder mystery. No one asks the talking skeleton for a fucking clue. If you have seen Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, you always ask the talking skeleton something. You ask it enough questions that it can die again. It is important. If you have not seen Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, you should because it was wonderful. Good to know. <laughs> uh, and then we get into the Enochian, which I, I've watched enough episodes of Supernatural to know all about Enochian. Okay. Uh, and then we we get the whole, oh, this guy is a crazy person who thinks he's Cain. And he is writing a letter to God asking for forgiveness. And as far as I know, Marvel doesn't have a version of Kane. DC has two. So, you know, you've got Kane from Sandman. Yes. And there was a whole thing with Vandal Savage being Kane, too. So, yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, he was the caveman. He is the, the first murderer. I can go with that. But Marvel is never... Marvel hasn't played that deeply into the biblical mythology. Mm. They, they really have stuck to your, you know, Greco-Roman, Norse, little bit of Egyptian mythology. Your your polytheistic pantheons. Right. They have rarely gone into your Christian mythology because every time they do suddenly Johnny Blaze isn't meeting Jesus anymore or uh, the one above all is Jack Kirby, which is still great. Yeah. No, I, listen, that holds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, Kane seeks forgiveness for killing his brother and doing the first murder by doing additional murders. Yeah. It is clear that our serial killer has mental health problems on top of believing that he's Kane, which is probably a mental health problem because I don't think he's Kane. Yeah. It, I don't know. It, 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 it hurts my brain. He's also and I think Tom it hurt Wiling. Pete's as well. <laughs> Tom Wiling played Kane on Lucifer. You, you can ask my fellow comics XF Lucifer fan and up a part as well. <laughs> <laughs> So after all this, Pete expresses the need for a drink. Very in character. And he asks about John Gideon, who's the man that we briefly met in issue number one, who said he was out on disability from F66. And this sends the entire F66 team running across the street like the goddamn Scooby gang to the local pub. (laughs) Not because they're thirsty, but because they've pieced something together. But before anyone can explain, that's that's when Saffron from Republica shows up and points the gun at them all and gives a speech from the beginning of Pulp Fiction. Not actually, but in my head. 
And thus endeth the lesson. Yeah. Uh, a, a very... I mean, it's not a bad... It's, it's a good cliffhanger. It is. But as as you said... The the pace the pacing is off and it's weird and there's there's too many ideas with not enough payoff, which is what you can say for a lot of Warren Ellis comics. Period. It is much more. It's much rarer to see a Warren Ellis comic that plays out properly over its full span than it is to see one with weird pacing and too many ideas. It's it's crazy. After, you know, the, the London Hellfire Club arc, I was like, this did not need to be five issues. Now I'm reading this three-issue story, and I'm like, this should have, there's, there's an extra issue in here, and I wish we'd gotten it. London Hellfire Club should have been two distinct arcs. You could have broken the Black Air and the London Hellfire Club out into different stories. Or you had to treat it more like a Claremontian arc from classic X-Men where it isn't trying to wrap itself up in five issues, but is instead this long-form thing that plays out for a couple of years. And while you could argue that's what Ellis was doing with the beginning, with Pete's first appearance through the end of London Hellfire Club, he comes up with too many ideas towards the end and just crams them in. And you don't, most of the London Hellfire Club doesn't have a friggin' name. Correct. The, the episode of Gosh Golly Wow, where I appeared on and talked about the first part of the London Hellfire Club's <laughs> official arc. Oh, boy. <laughs> R.I.P. Red King and Black King. We hardly knew yeah. you because you weren't fleshed out enough. But also, I, I don't did, know if I could handle twelve issues of that. <laughs> I did. You know, I like Miss Miss Steed, who you know was also Damask. Who, yeah, her. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, and boy, speaking of a character, <laughs> a character with unfortunate creator history, like she goes from okay, written by Warren Ellis, forgotten for decades and then picked up again by noted turf chelsea kane oh fuck you're right what was, was, mm-hmm. the, was it the mockingbird series mockingbird series what a weird pull <laughs> yeah uh, but you know she had more ground than either uh the red king or the black king so uh. i i guess i guess the lesson there is you had to have been in the age of apocalypse and the psychic skinning is a cool power, even it though is. it's nonsense words. Yes. But it has a cool sound to it, which is all you needed in the 90s. That's, that is true. But now that we've wrapped up the main the main thrust of uh, the story here, let's, let's wrap by doing a wisdom check. How many pages does wisdom appear in? 18. Nearly every page of this comic, because it's his comic, and he can do what he wants to. Best words of wisdom go to Harold Wisdom. For America is run by Freemasons who worship the A bomb and kill JFK according to ancient pagan ritual. <laughs> Best insult also goes to Harold for calling Kitty the corrupt American Freemason pagan witch girlfriend. So many words, none of them anti Semitic, 
We checked. <laughs> uh, also, Harold Wisdom and Bob both drop a netty T for Torag. <laughs> Does he use his hot knives as issue? Yes. And as we've already said, they look ridiculous. Does he smoke in this issue? No. This one shocked me. I scanned the issue three or four times. Not once does Pete have a cigarette in his mouth or in his fingers, in his own book. This book is so action-packed, Pete forgot to smoke. Ah! Maybe that's how one stops smoking. Uh, fashion Watch. There is not a ton of fresh fashion here to comment on. So once more, I give the nod one last time to Harold Wisdom for his soiled nightshirt that may have been black and white like a footlocker polo at some point. And again, he's not wearing underwear. Uh, no letters, because there was no letter column. Meanwhile, in some of the other comics that came out that week, Fantastic Four number one, Jim Lee's Heroes Reborn retelling of the FF's origin. XSE number one, John Ostrander's third or eighth Bishop miniseries. I can't remember. I've lost count. It's probably the third. Uh, Star Trek Voyager number one. Promising all new stories with the characters of the United Paramount Network show. A Young series aired along with such legendary shows as The Secret Diary of Desmond Pfeiffer and uh, was it Brothers from Outer Space, I believe. Uh, it was uh, Homeboys from Outer Space. Homeboys from Outer Space. That's it. Yeah. Uh, Secret Diary of Desmond Pfeiffer was the one I was trying to think of the other day. I, I <laughs> the w- one from Clerks the Cartoon. Yes, that one. <laughs> Someday. Like, there was one where Chi McBride was like Black Abraham Lincoln or he time travel or, or something. <laughs> Someday we are going to do a bonus episode for either this show I'll have you over for a bonus for Bat Chat because it's no less ridiculous than some of the stuff Will and I ramble about where we watch and ramble about Clerks the Cartoon again because it's just, yeah. Okay, you you have a plan, a bonus content plan for Bat Chat where you do non-Batman things, correct? I do indeed. Okay, I'm inviting <laughs> myself on that bonus episode to talk about the Clerks cartoon. <laughs> I mean, Kevin Smith has written Batman stuff. So it sort of counts <laughs> close enough for government work. <laughs> oh, bear is driving. Yep. Another fun one on here, by the way, that uh, uncanny origins. Number three, this was when Marvel was doing dollar comics, like untold legend, untold uh, legends, of, untold tales of Spider-Man until legend of Spider-Man, the Busiek Patrick Olaf book. That's, Untold Tales? I think Untold it was Untold Tales. Tales. Untold yeah. Tales. Yeah. Untold Legend is Untold Legend of Batman. Uh, but this this was an all-ages dollar book. They also did Over the Edge, uh, Professor Xavier and the X-Men. Mm-hmm. But this one was done in a pseudo-Batman the Animated series or that kind of like a broader, more animated style hmm. that had the origins of different Marvel characters in each one-shot. The first one is Cyclops which is mm-hmm. why I remember it, because I remember that. But I remember they did Cyclops, they did Beast, they did Angel, they did Hulk and Daredevil. This is the Angel issue here, but it was like, that was a fun concept. And something that 
would not be the worst idea to revisit. You could, I think it, it would be a helpful, it'd be a good like infinity comic, mm. especially in the Krakoan age. And you do it with like, who are all these obscure ass mutants on this island that we keep looking at? So it's like Uncanny Origins, Rubbermaid and, and uh, Explodey Boy and... I don't know, all the Kyle and Yost characters. <laughs> yeah. And I still stand firmly by we need a series of variant covers to X-Men Red similar to the Mike, the Mark Bagley Every Mutant Evers that came out on the uh, for the first issues of the Dawn of X books uh-huh. that are all of the Iraqi mutants. I don't know who you get to draw them, but I want to have to be able to lay them down next to my every mutant ever variants with every Iraqi mutant ever variants. That'd be fun. And most yeah. of it would be the white swords guys. Mm-hmm. His hundred guys that he has. Yeah. Yes. name. <laughs> I think the hundred guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, Yet, yeah, so the bullpen bulletins also hail the births of a son for Terry Kavanaugh, a son for Adam Kubert, and a son for VP Jim Sokolowski, and also plug Bob Harris and John Romita Sr. going on QVC, but I can't tell what it is they're selling. Oh, I see. They were selling limited edition comics. I remember these, not that particular one, but I remember QVC where they would get comics creators to come on and huck their comics. I, 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 don't remember details about them, but I remember seeing them on QVC. Back in the days when you you know you had to channel surf, I remember stumbling across one once being fascinated hearing whoever it was, I think it might have been Jim Shooter, talking about Warriors of Plasm. Wow. <laughs> Be dialing. <laughs> I, 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 one of those things where I wonder if you like Google QVC comics 90s show if someone has you know videos on YouTube of somebody you know talking about their comic oh well I just did it and afternoon delights Mark Hamill on QVC in 1992 Neon Splatter I don't know if that's the name of a comic or the name of the show but yep back in the 90s comics were everywhere even on your home shopping channel <laughs> ad watch we've got coca-cola the heart of darkness pc game butterfinger bogey dead six for the playstation crash bandicoot for the playstation mile high comics ziploc sandwich bags with marvel superheroes on them Possibly the only time I can remember seeing the Julia Carpenter Spider-Woman on merch. Nickelodeon, which apparently had a stick for a mascot at the time. An Electra House ad. NBC's team-focused Saturday morning lineup. And UPN's, yeah, there's that network again, Sunday morning cartoon lineup, which included a Hulk cartoon, uh, which I don't remember well, except for one time when I saw an episode that included a ridiculously horny She-Hulk on this children's Sunday morning on the Sabbath cartoon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that... It, Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk 
it as the voice of the Hulk. Yes, just mm. not Banner, but the Hulk. Sure. And yeah. The second season that the first season of that aired paired with the second season of the Iron Man cartoon where Uncle Phil was War Machine. Yes, I remember that one. Yeah. So, and then the second season of that became Hulk and She Hulk, and it was even less good. But the. This is from the same studios that gave us the Fantastic Four with Brian Austin Green rapping as the Human Torch. And the, the Put worst. That in your Deadpool three. <laughs> and uh, the 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 Fantastic Four theme song. Google '90s Fantastic Four theme song, folks. You will have this earworm in your head for the next thirty years, oh. and it is delightfully terrible. I blocked that one out. Good move. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, Matt, this has been a fantastic time, as it always is. How can people follow you online and support the things that you are doing? Well, if you're listening to this, you listen to WMQ&A, where I appear every week alongside this fine gentleman. So you're already halfway there. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, You can also come over and listen to my other podcast, Bat Chat with Matt and Will, also up on Comics XF where me and Will Nevin read Batman comics. Uh, you can find that at ComicsXF. You can back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Will, where you'll get a similar bonus podcast where we read other, or view other Batman media, TV, animation, movies, etc., and talk about that. I have various other plans for that. Some non-Batman content, some reviews of stuff that isn't like some other you know matt's other comics that he's reading right now that he really likes that aren't batman <laughs> and beyond that i write stuff on comics xf every now and then well bat chat every week and then other stuff uh monthly reviews of some of the x books that aren't being covered elsewhere with my pal tony thornley and who knows what else i have in the works i can't say no and have no time so it's crazy (laughs) uh well thank you brother uh for for spending this time with me and uh next month we'll say goodbye to the ellis run of excalibur with issue 103 and uh, i guess i have to find somebody who can tell me why i need to care about margali's artists but until next time listeners sold off torag (laughs) 